I'm excited about um, what I want to share with you this morning because we've finished a series, uh, Amazing Grace to Irregular Families, looking at some irregular families in Scripture and um, just reminding ourselves of how amazing God is in the middle of all that. And I want to start something new this morning. Um, I'm going to be looking at the first three chapters of uh, Revelation. And it's a Revelation is a fantastic book. It really is a fantastic book. V very misunderstood, very badly dealt with a lot of the time. Um, and I hope that I don't do damage to it. I hope that I preach it the way it is. I certainly believe that's what I'm going to do. Revelation, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, it's like Star Wars. It's like Lord of the Rings. It might even be a little bit like Game of Thrones. It's apocalyptic in style, which means you've got numbers, you've got pictures, you've got symbols all the way through it. You have to tread really carefully and yet you need to absorb the central message. Uh, like an impressionist painting, like a Van Gogh or something like that, you have to stand back and admire the view. You have to absorb the passion. Uh, however, Job sets it in a context. The vision came at a certain place, at a certain time, to a certain man. It is rooted in place-time history and it is very relevant to the church that we're reading it. One of the difficulties with the way some people interpret it is they interpret the book of Revelation from what I believe is a very ego-centered point of view. In other words, this book is all about me. It's all about what's happening in my life. It's all about what's happening in my time. Oh, really? Did John make, not make it very clear? I'm writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he outlines them. So it's relevant to the church of every generation and it's relevant to you. So what I'm going to do is on a Sunday, I'm going to take bits of Revelation 1 to 3 and I'm not going to preach particularly deeply, particularly long on them. But in the week that follows, I'm going to record for you an exegesis or a, an unravelling of the text and I will put that under the title uh, of Magnificent Sevens. If you go to our YouTube channel, Harvest Church Croydon, Harvest Church Croydon, you'll find that there is a set of playlists under the general title Magnificent Sevens. And I have dealt with the seven words of Jesus on the cross. I will now open a new page under Magnificent Sevens, and that will be the letters to the churches. And uh, Harvest Church, we're going to absorb 
Revelation 1 to 3 over the next uh, few months. We're going to absorb that and we're going to get stuff from it. But first of all, I want us to think about the author. Can you turn to Revelation? You notice I don't put the scriptures up on the screen. I could put them up on the screen, but hey, you're at home. If you don't have a Bible at home, can I tell you, believer, you're in trouble. So get your Bible out, book of Revelation, and I'm going to read a few verses from chapter one. Here we go. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads these words. I'm blessed. I've just read them. Hallelujah. Blessed is the one who reads these words. Reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it. Did you hear it? You're blessed. And take to heart what's written in us. Ah, that's different. Am I going to take it to heart? What's written in this prophecy? It's like what we were talking about earlier about wisdom. It's he who hears my words and puts them into practice. So there are three blessings available. Those who read it, those who hear it, and those who do it. Verse 4. John. What? John Smith? John Roberts? John McPherson? John Campbell? John. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Father, would you illuminate these verses? Would you teach us? From these verses would this word become flesh in our hearts in Jesus name Amen I John if I wrote to Harvest Church if I just posted a message on Harvest Church messenger page and I said I Ronnie you would know who it was. You would know it was me. I wouldn't have to say even I, Pastor Ronnie, or I, Ronnie Campbell, of, and give my address, or whatever. If I just said I, Ronnie, you would know who it was. 
John is going to write to seven churches, seven churches that know John. Seven churches that John, almost without question, has ministered into over the years. They know who he is. And I want to tell you who he is. I want to give you a little bit of bio about John. I'll give you his CV. John is the brother of James. He's one of two sons of Zebedee, known as sons of thunder. Either they were very loud or they were very boisterous or I don't know, but maybe something from their childhood, but they are sons of thunder. Something you probably don't know, Jesus and John are probably first cousins. Did you know that, Pam? They're probably first cousins. Um, Salome, one of the ladies who follows Salome and Mary, were probably sisters from the, from the verses. You can check it out for yourself. But the inference is that they were sisters, and that makes John a cousin of Jesus. They were fishermen. John was a follower of John the Baptist before he became a follower of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. He is a disciple of Jesus. He was a member of the inner core. Jesus had 12 disciples that he set aside from all the other disciples. And within that 12, he had an inner core of Peter, James and John. John and his brother and Peter. At the Transfiguration Mount, Peter, James and John are there. It's Peter and John that prepare the Passover that became the Last Supper. They are the ones that are given the responsibility. Um, it's Jesus, um, it's John, sorry, that accompanies Jesus in the garden as he prays. It's John that reclines on Jesus, sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. It's John that Jesus speaks to on the cross and says to John, uh, behold, John, behold your mother, pointing at Mary. And then he says to Mary, mother, behold your son. In other words, John is given the tremendous privilege of looking after the probably widowed mother of Jesus as she's about to lose her firstborn on the cross. John is given the amazing task of looking after her. It's John who outruns Peter to the tomb on resurrection morning. Being a little bit less bold perhaps than Peter, it's Peter who rushes in. But it's John who then goes in, who sees the empty tomb and the grave clothes and says himself, he believed. John believed. It's John who accompanies Peter to the temple following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And he sees there a paralysed man and Peter and John look at him and they say to him, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they perform that amazing 
miracle. It's John that accompanies Peter to Samaria when the gospel has broken out of Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria. He and Peter go to establish the new believers, to establish the church. He's in there. He's in the mission. It's James, his brother, who becomes one of the first martyrs for the cause. And there, James, shortly after he has been leading the church in Jerusalem, he loses his life, he's beheaded, and John is left without his brother. It's that John who wrote the Gospel of John. It's this John who is writing Revelation who writes three epistles. One John, two John and three John. John, we are told, is a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. He cares for the churches. And it's this John who is now exiled in the Adriatic Sea off the coast of Turkey uh, because of being a follower of Jesus, probably working in the stone quarries even at his age. And it's this John that would later die of natural causes in Ephesus, one of the churches that he writes to. So there is a brief history of John. But this is what excites me. John is 60 years into his ministry. You know, we read the, the Bible as though it all took place three years after Jesus ascended. This is 60 years after. It's about AD 90. And most, if not all, of the other disciples have died off. John is one of the last remaining apostles and disciples of Jesus. Uh, this is this year marks 40 years since I travelled to London to Spurgeon's College. I was watching on my Facebook page, uh, I was looking at pictures of some of my dear friends back in Ardrossan in Scotland and they were paddling out in their boat last week in the North Shore. Sea was like glass, sun was shining, and I thought, oh, to be there, to be there, to be back in Bonnie, Scotland. Well, God called me in 1979, and in 1980, I travelled to Spurgeon's College, and I thought I would be there for a few years, and then I would return to the motherland. And there I would preach the gospel. And God had other plans. And here I am in sunny Croydon. And God has placed me here. This is where I should be. So when I look at John, I can, I can somewhat understand how he feels. 60 years in ministry. Okay, okay. What do we learn from this passage? On the Lord's day, verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. 
Do I get excited easily? I'm just excited. First, the Lord's Day. When did we start talking about the Lord's Day? The Lord's Day isn't mentioned anywhere in Scripture, but 60 years on, the church 60 years later, there is one day of the week that is established as the Lord's Day. And if any believer speaks to another believer and said, what are you doing on the Lord's Day? Where are you going on the Lord's Day? Sunday has been replaced by the Lord's Day. Now, when John was growing up, there would have been one special day. It was called the Sabbath. And the Sabbath day was the seventh day. And you kept that day holy because it was in the commandments to observe the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But the word teaches us that because of Jesus dying on the cross, because of the absolutely finished work of Jesus, every day is a Sabbath day. Every day is a day of spiritual rest that we have to strive to enter into the rest of that day. And so the Sabbath has been spread across all these seven days. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday would have been the Sabbath the Sabbath is the seventh day. The Sabbath has gone from the Christian horizon. It's been turned into something far greater. But the Lord's Day, that's become marked. This is the day of the week when the Lord Jesus rose again. This is the Lord's Day. And I love that, that that's developed over the journey. Somebody must have started referring to it as the Lord's Day and it's caught on. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. This man still loves Jesus. 60 years on, he still loves Jesus. I love that. 40 years on, I still love Jesus. If I go back to the day when I, as a boy, said to Jesus, I want you as my Lord and Saviour, I was seven years old, 60 years later. I still love Jesus. 60 years later, that's not the same for some of the youngsters I grew up with, sadly, sadly. But I still love Jesus and John there, he's possibly on his own, he's in exile, he's there against his will because he's a believer and he's in the spirit. Now, what does it mean? He was in the spirit. Was he in some kind of, you know, some kind of trance? Is that what he's speaking about? Maybe, maybe. I just think he was giving himself over to the Lord. He was saying, in this hour, Lord, would you just shut all the things of this world away? 
I want to draw near into your presence. I want you to come, Father, and I want you to meet with me. I want to touch the hem of your garment, Lord Jesus. I want to just experience your presence. I want to know what you are saying. And to me, that's what was happening. We might call it in Christianese. John was having a bit of a quiet time. It actually might have been a bit of a noisy time. He might have been praising and shouting and jumping and dancing. He may have been sitting quietly. He may have been flat out in the ground. I don't know. But John is saying it was the Lord's day and I was in the right place in my heart. I was in the right place to hear the voice of Jesus. Despite everything. Despite everything. You know, how many people give us this, this story about how terrible their circumstances and it forced them away from following Jesus or this thing happened to me and now I don't believe anymore. That's not how it works, guys. When things get hard, when you find yourself on Patmos, in the stone quarries, in exile, you get in the spirit. You just come before God. When you're in the depths of that Philippian jail, like Paul and Silas, you just get together and you worship and you praise God and you get out of it in your heart and in your mind. When Peter is there in prison in, in the early days for preaching, he just throws himself on God and the angel comes to him. That's how it works. John still loves Jesus. Here's the second thing in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm still into the word. I'm still into Testimony. John still loves Jesus, but John still loves the Word. You know, I can remember when I was younger, when I was in my teens, when I was in my early 20s, I had that passion to absorb the Word. I had that passion to get into the Word of God for myself. I didn't just want to listen on a Sunday to hear what everyone else was saying about the Word of God. I wanted to know it for myself. And I thought, Ronnie, if you want to know it for yourself, you'll need to read it for yourself. He's in exile because of the Word of God. Maybe some of the things he had written, some of the things he had said. And because of the testimony of Jesus. I keep telling people about Jesus. That's why I'm here. I keep telling people about Jesus. Now that I'm older, I'm thinking, hey, I'd better write some of this down. And so he writes the Gospel of John. One of the latest, well, the latest Gospel to be written is the Gospel of John. And he writes it down. You know, that word testimony for the testimony of Jesus comes from Marturos to bear witness from which we get our English word martyr. A martyr is someone who testifies, 
who witnesses for the cause at the expense of his own life. That's the ultimate testimony. And John can look back on several of the other apostles who had given their lives already for the gospel. As I said earlier, tradition has it that he died of an old age. But many others didn't get that far. Uh, he still loves the gospel. Do you still love the gospel? Are you still sharing the gospel? Do you assume because we all go to school and we live in a, a kind of Christianized cultural world that people know the story? I don't need to tell them about Jesus. Yes, you do. You do. It's not just information, it's a message. The message is this, Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He died for you. He gave himself for you. It's a message that people need to hear. Yes, they can reject it, but that's their problem. John still loves the message. And lastly, John still loves the church. 60 years and he still loves the church. Your brother, I, John, your brother, we're family, we're family. I've developed such a family over the years and I personally have such a family. So many people that I have met that own the same Jesus as I do. I'm your companion, we're walking together. I'm your brother and I'm your companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. We are brothers in arms, guys. We are brothers in arms. In John 3, he uh, talks about some who haven't made it this far. He talks about uh, Diotrephes, who likes to be first. He talks about Antichrist and how some people had come in and now they've gone from us. But you, you're still with me. We're still walking together. We're still companions. We're still brothers in arms because of Jesus. And yes, there's suffering, but we're in it together. Yes, there's kingdom and we're in it together. There's patient endurance and we are in it together. John loves Jesus still. John loves the gospel still. John loves the church still. I'd love to meet him. I'd like to go to Patmos right now and just sit down with him. And John, you said in your gospel there were so many other things that you've not been able to record. Tell me about some of them. Tell me about some of them. John's final message is this. I, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write. Write. W-R-I-T-E. Write, John. Write it down, John. I've got stuff to say to you write it down and John writes revelation all glorious all seeing 
all-powerful, all-present Lord Jesus. And he's in the midst of his church. This is a new vision that we've hardly seen before of Jesus, the lion and the lamb in the midst of his church. Write it down, John. Tell the readers that Jesus holds the keys to death and hell. John, tell the readers I'm coming back on a white horse. Glorious, exalted Lord Jesus. So that's who John is. But who are you? Who are you? Are you still standing after all these years? For some of you, it's been three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years. Some of you, it's been a lot longer. Are you still standing? Are you still loving Jesus? Are you still loving the gospel? Are you still loving the church? Because you need to. You need to. And if you are, then let's write. Let's, you and I, let's create a narrative to leave for the believers that may come behind us. Let's write a story. Your life your church, my life, my church, let's write. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God. Father God. Yeah, Lord God. Maybe you're saying in your heart, well, Ronnie, I certainly was standing a few years ago, I think. Maybe I'm sitting now. I don't think I've walked away. I don't think I've turned my back, although I know some have. I think I'm just sitting down. But I think I should be standing up. Yeah, Father, would you help us, having done all, to stand. Some here, you love Jesus, but not really done much about this whole idea of evangelizing, of spreading the gospel, of going into all the world and proclaiming the gospel, going into all the world and making disciples. We've been sitting down a bit. Oh, Lord, I need to stand up in that area. You have called me an ambassador. What kind of an ambassador have I been? Father, would you set me on fire this morning? And still loving the church? Oh, I love Jesus. It's people I can't stand. I love Jesus. It's the church I can't stand. Well, do you know you need to? 
Because to stand up means to love the things that God loves, to love the things that Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. He's not saying the church is perfect in itself, but he loves the church. Father, would you help me? I repent of my wrong attitudes to the church, that in my pride, that in my bitterness, I have judged the church as though I was in a place to do that. Lord, I want to love your church. I want to stand again as a member of your church. And Father, would you help us all to write an amazing story, an amazing narrative in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, God.